Hello, I'm Noah Gibbs, and this is Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits. I'm here with Craig Pedersen, a freelance developer, and uh, we're, gonna, we're going to talk about development and how he learned it. Uh, hey, Craig, good to talk to you. Hi, Noah. Hope you're doing well. Uh, doing wonderfully. Doing wonderfully. I'm in Inverness at this point. Uh, you know, people have a tendency to say, uh, I don't know why you'd come here after California. And we say things like, well, uh, you know how California's been in a drought for decades? And you know how all, all the land in the center has dropped about 30 feet, about, about 10 meters in the last 10 years, uh, because the water under it is being sucked out at that much of a rate? And you know how the wildfires have gotten to the point where there are billions of dollars worth of towns you know, on fire? Uh, we love being in a place where everything's wet all the time. And if you set a fire, it's not going to go any distance at all. That's, that's lovely. You know, water comes out of the sky all the time, and there's, there's little, you know, brooks and, and burns and things. Oh, no, we, we think we're in a wonderful place. We like it a great deal. <laughs> all the time kind of hit a bit close to the heart there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we it's like it. Pleasurable. Yeah. yeah, when you've when you've been in a place that's just desert as far as the eye can see and about as far as the car can drive for uh, for for uh, year after year, you know, I was out there about seventeen years, and my wife grew up there, um, well, among other places. But she was there a long time. Coming to a place that is wet all the time is weirdly magical. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Uh, we were talking a little bit about how you saw my talk at Brighton Ruby, and uh, you know, performance can be can be hard to keep track of day to day, and I I absolutely yeah. sympathize with that. Um, yeah. So sorry, you were you were talking a little bit about how uh, performance is important to you, and uh, sometimes you manage to get it done, but sometimes it winds up being sort of swept out of the way in favor of other priorities. Makes sense to me. Tell me a little more about mm -hmm. that. Um, so the main problem really is that we were working on a client-based project, so rather than anything in-house. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the times it was more, okay, we're working on feature A, and then as soon as feature A is done, we'll work on feature B and then C, and it just kind of went on like that. Yeah. And there was never any time to sort of go back and fix problems that we had and you know deal with technical debt and make things faster in general. That makes um, sense. So there was quite a few times where we we knew there was a performance issue somewhere, but it was never a priority, and that kind of led to a lot of frustration, really. That makes sense. It's it's hard looking back on something you've done a long time ago and sort of seeing all the various problems with it. I, uh... <laughs> I think it's, it's also quite hard, um, like, promoting it to a client as well, because they just see it as, like, you're only shaving off, like, a fraction of a second they're like well i'm sure they can deal with it but there's uh there's definitely research out there that shows that performance can actually sort of correlate with revenue and things like that so there is and you know if well you're a freelance developer now i was going to say if you wanted to be in more of a consulting role it would become important for you to be able to just you know kind of quote that research immediately um yeah as as part of you know selling them on the work but yeah, I have to assume Nate Berkopek can just quote that kind of thing off the top of his head. I, I can't at the moment. Almost certainly. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, was someone that came to mind uh, immediately. Um, so when it comes to performance, actually, Nate and yourself are kind of the only two names that I can think of, really. So is, th is there anyone else that we should be looking at? Uh, there, there is. There is uh, Schnims. Uh, Richard Schneeman is yeah. one of the, the early names that comes to my head. Um, he focuses a little less on CPU and a little more on, on memory on the things I've seen, but that's actually important as well often. Um, 
let's see, Sam Saffron does uh, a significant yeah. amount. Uh, he's a little harder to get hold of, and he doesn't go out and, and give talks as often. But uh, a lot of his performance work, if you can find it, is, is first rate. Uh, he works on discourse uh, and does some interesting yeah, things fun. there. Well, didn't you mention discourse in your Brighton Ruby talk as well, actually? Uh, yes, discourse is one of the tools that I time. So Rails Ruby Bench, the one that, that takes a big Rails forum app and, and tosses requests at it to see how fast it processes them, that, that Rails forum app is discourse. Um, a lot yeah. of what makes Rails Ruby Bench uh, good and bad in the ways it's good and bad is the fact that it uses a, a real piece of software that people actually use in the wild. And so for... Uh, for something you'd see in a benchmark, it's a very hairy piece of code um, because it's a real piece of code. You know, it's designed to, to actually be used. And so it's uh, kind it's of a terrible benchmark. It's all open source as well. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. Discourse has been chosen for, for the, the same kind of thing by a number of people because it's basically the largest Rails open source uh, app you can easily get your hands on. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah going back to the not working on performance um like that famous kent beck quote always comes to mind with the uh make it work make it better make it fast That's i feel one. like a lot of places um you kind of just do the first step and then throw the rest of it out which is sad <laughs> yeah no it's true there's it's a little like red green refactor you know it turns out if you skip a step you get a very different result yeah yeah true no it make, um, makes a lot of sense so uh, let me ask you kind of the, the key question I usually open with. I mean, I wanted to talk to you about mm -hmm. performance because we started with that. How did you learn to do what you do? You write software for a living. How did you learn to do it? Uh, well, it was kind of a long process, to be honest. Um, sure. So my, my, dad's, my dad's in IT. Um, yeah. So I kind of grew up around computers. Um, I actually like built a couple while I was younger. Um, but when it comes to actually... Um, building software, I actually started with an application called FrontPage, if you've ever heard of that. I've heard of it. Um, very similar to Dreamweaver, which is probably one of the more popular ones recently. Um, but it was all sort of what you see is what you get, HTML building type thing. Um, so I started off building a few smaller websites like that. Um, I'm sure there's some embarrassing ones out there for people to find, which I'm definitely not going to plug in this. <laughs> Um, but it kind of went from there, really. Um, so I did sort of IT-based courses in... Um, so at the end of high school, there was an IT-based course, and then I went on to college and eventually uni. Um, so do you, you call it uni in America, or is it it's uh, like usually, college? And usually you say college for the, the sort of post-secondary. Okay. Yeah, usually you'd say okay, college. Okay, so in... The UK, it's sort of high school, college, then university. Um, so in university, I went to do computer science, which I think is kind of why I'm here, because you wanted to talk to people who have done computer science in general. Well, um, I wanted to talk to people who develop software in general. I mean, I've talked to some boot camp graduates true. and self-taught uh, folks as well. Um, but it is common. You know, when you talk to people who develop software, you, you do talk to a lot of computer science graduates. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of interesting actually, cause I kind of felt that, um, cause you've spoke a lot about boot camps, and I actually kind of think at the moment boot camps are a better route to go. Um, because, um, I feel like uni sort of, it opened the door for me, but I feel like there's 99% of it. I don't remember at all. 
Um, and when it comes to actually programming, which is what I do day to day, there was only one module in the whole course on programming and the rest was all sort of uh, like project management and other aspects of computer science, like networking and things like that, that wasn't necessarily interested in. Sure. So um, how, how long ago was your university education? Uh, so I graduated in 2015, so five years. Okay. Um, I went from uni straight into my first job and I was there five years basically until I started freelancing. That makes sense. I, I just asked because, uh, so I graduated in 1998 and things were a little bit different yeah. then. I heard <laughs> from people who, uh, you know, who say they had project management classes in university and I think, huh. I, I mean, it sounded like you were saying you had a lot of project management classes in university and I thought, huh. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't do those. It was possible to get something that if you squinted, you might call a, a project management class, but I would have <laughs> had to get a master's degree to do it and I didn't. That's fair enough. Uh, masters is interesting as well, actually, because I've worked with a few people that have masters, and until they said, I had no idea, basically. Sure, um, you wouldn't. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> they walk would us. you would you promote someone getting a master's degree if they'd uh, gone down the sort of university route or not? I can think of a few reasons somebody might. By and large, I would not. You know, sort of, would I, right, would, okay. I, would I suggest that for more or less than 50% of the people who came to me asking if they should? Less than 50% would I say yes. Um, okay. But the number would be well, a lot higher reason. than 0%. Um, so, if you're really early in your career, and especially if you're in one of the more academic sub-disciplines, you can make more money with it. And so if somebody comes to okay. me and says, I'm in computer graphics and I want mm -hmm. to be able to have job interviews go very well in computer graphics, and I'd like to make more money, I would say, well, that sounds well-reasoned. Uh, you should figure out how much more money you think you can make and which place you're going to get a master's at. But overall, that sounds possible. Let's, let's work out the, the outlines of the math. That sounds reasonable, which is basically a yes, of course. Um, mm -hmm. Or if somebody was to say... I have uh, an undergraduate degree in computer science, and I'd make, like to make a lot more money, and I'm looking at getting an MBA. I'd say, you're not going to get an MBA cheaply in a small amount of time at a correspondence university, right? Because while that's cheap, it's mm -hmm. also the same as throwing that money away. You're not going to do that, right? Uh, and if they say, no, actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go to a, a top five MBA school, I would say... Uh, assuming they're still, you know, young, a recent computer science graduate, you've thought this through carefully. This is a large investment, but particularly after your MBA, you're going to understand you don't have any choice but to keep doing it, given the amount of debt you're in, so Godspeed. Um, so that, <laughs> that's a specific master's. It's a master of business administration, but um, mm -hmm. that would be a great reason, because it turns out people with a computer science degree and an MBA make a lot more money than people with only one of those two degrees. Uh, they're both very expensive, but that could be a well-thought-out reason. Uh, if somebody had a specific area of research they wanted to get into either for a job or for their own purposes, and that was the only way they could manage to get time with that thesis advisor, that might be a good reason to do it, though it would be an expensive way to get somebody's time, and you should certainly just email them and yeah, see if they're definitely. willing to talk to you first. Um, <laughs> well, uh, no, really. I mean, a thesis advisor, if they're being paid to talk to you constantly about this thing you want to do, are going to do more of it. 
And so there are absolutely cases where going and getting a master's degree is the right answer there, especially because at a lot of U.S. universities, uh, you don't wind up paying tuition for that. You wind up, you know, teaching the students some things. You're sort of an unpaid addition to the university's prestige. But it is cheaper to get year by year to get a master's degree after your undergrad than it is to go through your undergrad as a rule. Um, okay. And so that, I mean, that could be a, a perfectly good thing. I want to get into X machine learning field and I want to be recognized as an authority on it from the get-go and have a long and fruitful career in that. Uh, to do this, I want to go and get a master's degree with X specific thesis advisor who is well-respected. Um, I would say yes, absolutely. That's a great reason That's, to do it. Sounds like a hard choice to put on um a less than 20-year-old or however old they will be. Uh, yes, that's, that's one of the reasons I would say no to more than, more than half of people who ask me, probably like 80% of people who ask me. Um, most of them have made a hard choice the way a less than 20-year-old would, and I, I would be, I, I, as an older fellow, I, my, my job in that case is to disabuse them of the notion that life is fair in the ways they think it is, unless, again, they've, they've come up with one of the, the good reasons. There are good reasons, um, but if you come to me and say, I think I'm going to make more money with a master's degree, I'm going to say, okay, which master's degree from which institution and how do you think you're going to make more money? Um, because usually the answer is no. And, or, or it's no, effectively no. You're going to spend more on the master's degree than it would make sense to, you know, no, just get the work yeah. experience and try to get a, a promotion a little bit sooner and you'll do better on it. Um, but um, especially if you want a master's in a not exactly computer science field, oh, I'm going to learn databases. No. No one, no one pays you more money because you know databases. DBAs do not make as much money as developers. Save your time, <laughs> save your money, don't, don't do that. Um, I'm going to go yeah. get a certification. A certification. Uh, probably a bad idea, but which certification? Um, I'm going to go become a, a, an Oracle certified Java engineer. I mean, is it a hobby? You could do that as a hobby. Um, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it to make more money than if you just sat around being a developer at high speed. Um, same kind of thing as adding a DBA. Like most of these certifications are not really worth the paper they're printed on unless they are your primary certification. If you want to go be like a Cisco certified network engineer and you don't otherwise have a degree, go to it, man. Um, but yeah, most of them, no. I feel like um, sort of a lot of that comes around to sort of um, uh, bu like buzzword gatekeeping in the software industry because there's like plenty of times where I've applied for jobs and I don't know, like I hit 99% of the criteria for it because I'm missing a buzzword. They basically just throw my CV away. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> that's always the worry. Um, and if that is your worry, then understand that for one thing, if you do hit all of the actual criteria, you can still misphrase and still miss it. If you're bothered about yeah. that for the cases where it matters, which are not nearly as many as you think they are, um, great, what you need to do is learn to network. And once you have learned to network, it turns sure. out that your other qualifications no longer matter if you can do the job. I think that's true because uh, like I, I specifically use the word uh, uh, buzzword gatekeeping because I actually remember when I first started, uh, my boss said about, it, it was just about using an instance variable. And I, at the time I was like, what even is an instance variable? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's just yeah. the language people use to get things done. I think it is, um, it can be sort of restrictive sometimes, but I think there's a balance to that because it kind of gives everyone a language to speak where they can sort of agree on something, if you see yeah. what I mean. No, longer term, I think it's actually, and I feel bad saying this, I think it's actually a really good way to handle it. I don't think it's a coincidence that this is how every group of skilled people exchanging information throughout human history have done it. Mm -hmm. um, it's 
jargon is certainly not something computer people invented. Yeah. I mean, it's That's true. The, the word for it is much, much older than computers, as well it should be. Yeah. But um, sometimes, like, the instance variable is a very simple example, but it doesn't take a lot for it. If you say instance variable and someone says, I don't know what an instance variable means, there's yeah. a difference between saying, okay, you don't know what that means, you're not qualified for this job, and you don't know what that means. Yeah, uh, it means this. <laughs> you, you, you can learn a lot about somebody by going in and talking to them about a discipline adjacent to your own and sitting there with a laptop open beside you and Googling things, you know, as you hear them, um, because you can learn a lot about that person from how they react to it. Uh, because very often, if you're talking about a programming language you don't know, but it's like one that you know, or an area that's, you know, technical and you don't really know it, but you can Google the words and kind of keep up. Um, mm -hmm somebody who who just rolls with that and is basically okay with it and stops to maybe explain or ask questions is usually a person that is going to be pretty darn good in the disciplines you do know as well. Whereas somebody that is a problem when you're doing that, who feels that that is inadequate to task, is usually going to be painful to work with even in areas where you do know it perfectly well off the top of your head and don't have to Google it. It's a great way to learn about somebody. That's interesting, yeah. You know, when when you talk about the you know the googling it, I've got to say when I heard about Google Glass, you know the little the little glasses things, there was yeah. one app that immediately went through my head that I I went oh, okay the rest of Google Glass seems silly yes yes they're making fun of people for all kinds of reasons but this if this existed I would absolutely use it and I don't think it ever happened, um, but you know if you just had something on Google Glass that did dubious quality audio recognition that just like tried to pick words out of the air and then Googled them. And any time it got a, a Google result that looked, uh, that looked reasonably convincing, it would pop up just a little snippet, like the first, the first result or two on the right side of your vision. And so pretty much anything that anybody was talking about nearby, it would cheerfully Google that and it would do a constant little scrolling feed of things it had Googled about the phrases you'd heard. Um, cool. Yeah. Oh, it sounds more useful for translations than... <laughs> well, I guess that's sort of the same thing, isn't it? You're translating uh, a technical language rather than... Yeah, it's, it's good for translations where we have no formal ability to translate. If you have a formal ability to translate, then a translation app can do something. American to Japanese, right? English to Japanese. Um, but really, American to Japanese is a better sort of thing that you'd want because... Um, Americans don't use all the same vocabulary as British people, as I'm, you know, learning this past year and more. Um, True. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but it means that very often you need something that is a translation but would not be recognized as such. The people who talk about translations wouldn't call it one. Um, and yeah, so sort of cultural translation. And while cultural translation is very much an unsolved problem. Sitting and Googling phrases and having it rapidly go by is probably the closest that Western civilization has gotten to that one yet. Fair enough. There is the same sort of thing in programming languages, though, because there's like, mm. say you wanted to write something in Ruby versus Java, like mm -hmm. you could probably do both of them in both languages, but there is that sort of syntax difference. So. I wonder Absolutely. if there's anything that quick, quickly translates Ruby code into Java code and stuff like that. I mean, the, the problem, as far as I can tell, is that while things like that do exist, uh, for instance, if you want Ruby to JavaScript, it turns out there's a tool called uh, Opal that does just exactly that. Um, and there are a lot of things like that. Rhino is JavaScript to Java, you know, that kind of thing. There are tools that do that as how they operate. Um, usually you don't 
have translate and show the results because you want to train people out of that. And if a machine is doing it, then you don't want to see the intermediate results. Right, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure with Java, it would just say public a hundred times as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's true. The verbosity of some of these things would make it pretty hard uh, to see what it was doing. When I came through uni, I actually did, um, for the first couple of years, I did Java. And then in my final year, I did a bit of Objective-C. Hmm. And I sort of, during that time, I dabbled with Ruby and I just kept thinking, I could just do this in Ruby using like X really quickly yeah. rather than this massive thing that I've got here. Yeah. So there's a, that's kind of what drew me to Ruby really. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of the Ruby uh, extension that lets you compile Ruby to Android Dalvik bytecode. But there's a, there's a JRuby type thing that will actually compile your Ruby apps to an Android app. There's also things oh, right, like okay. uh, Ruby Motion that are basically mRuby for mobile phones, uh, and in that case, supporting okay. both iPhone and, and Android. So actually, yeah, you can use Ruby for that kind of thing. Like that's that's out there; <laughs> it exists. Cool. Uh, cool. So, um, you know, you uh, you learned at the university. You went through a through a, a program there. You you mentioned as well that your father was in IT. Um, Sorry, remind me, did you do a lot of learning that before uni or were you mostly kind of learning from flat-footed in uni? Um, so I did learn a bit before uni, but it was mostly sort of front-end type stuff like HTML, WYSIWYG right. type things rather than actual programming languages. Right, you um, mentioned that. So sort of, yeah, when I got to college level, that's sort of where I became okay. more interested in the actual functionality got programming it. language type so it stuff. So it was just the like front page Dreamweaver sort of thing before that. That makes sense. That Pretty makes much. Sense. Um, in uni, the in the final year, we had like a placement thing where we had to go off and find a real job in um, programming. Um, and that was kind of one of the best experiences that sort of cemented that I wanted to do Ruby. Um, because I actually, at the time, I worked at um, a place where we were doing data entry for uh, like large print and braille, um, cool. like gas and electric bills. Um, and the first sort of um, like hacking around with programming languages, I guess, was actually using Visual Basic there because we had a, a thing um, where you could basically write your own sort of scripts and it would, uh, all the bits where you had to replace someone's name with the name of the person you were doing the bill for you could put into the script and then eventually if you got it right you could just hit play and it would just change the whole bill to be this person's bill cool uh, so that was quite interesting and then i went into the it department there to build a document management system and that was uh, actually in ruby at the time ruby on rails um but when i when i say ruby like 99% of the time it's Rails. <laughs> um, so I built the document management system there and I kind of just, I, I loved it to be honest. It was one of the best things I've done. I had a great mentor there. Um, cool. It was awesome. Yeah. I, you know, a lot of people had an amazing first uh, experience with Rails. Rails is what convinced me I had to actually, you know, buckle down and learn both Ruby and web programming. Like I'd used Ruby yeah. a tiny bit, but I'd used it the way you use Perl. Like I'd used it without it being attached to JavaScript or databases or, 
you know, yeah. just, just writing little scripts, which is a, a very different environment from what you or I do, you know, mostly these days. Well, when I, when I started that management system, um, I, I was taught to do it in Vim at the time. And I actually thought Vim was part of Ruby on Rails at that time. So, <laughs> so and I actually use Vim now, like I kind of went off uh, and started using like sublime text and things like that. But yeah. I'm back on using Vim now and it's great. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a sublime user these days. I used Emacs for a very long time. But, uh, Emacs, yeah. Oh, Emacs. Dear. I think yeah. that means I have to dislike you now. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, not you, sure you've certainly, certainly got that option. I mean, I'm a, I, I'm a former <laughs> Emacs user. Uh, you, you could consider me a repentant Emacs user if you'd like. <laughs> I, I could just be Fair highly enough. suspect if, that's, uh, if that would help you. <laughs> um, so uh, you talked about how your degree had a little bit of sort of actual coding and a lot mm -hmm. of theory and particular areas like networking, et cetera. How well do you feel your degree prepared you for your jobs developing software? Um, to be honest, my first instinct to that is to say not very well. Okay. <laughs> um, but there are, like I said before, there are sort of key things that I remember. Um, I guess the biggest one that always sticks into my mind is the, the KISS principle. Mm. Keep, keep it simple, stupid. Like that always comes up to my mind. And I think... Uh, like a lot of people, we kind of we find the most complicated way to do something or to seem smart, and really, they just they just need to do it the most simple way, and that will solve ninety nine percent of their problems. <laughs> I'm not sure how realistic this is for most developers, but I've got to say, the time I spent with ops folks, you know, do, doing operations in operations groups, mm -hmm. taught me that more kind of deeply down to the bone than anything else I've ever done. Uh, okay. It's, you know how if you're a developer, your job mm -hmm. is usually to add functionality? Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you write features, things like that. If you mm -hmm. are in ops, you understand deeply. You have to, and you're surrounded by people where this is the folklore, this is the understanding, this is the assumption in every sentence that adding functionality reduces stability. And if you can avoid it, you should seriously consider it. If there's any way to get away True. with less functionality, do it because that'll improve your stability. Can you deploy fewer times? Do it. Can you deploy fewer features? Do it. Um, operations people come up with gems that you will almost certainly never hear from other developers. Uh, I see the, you know, the irony in me being a developer and saying it. Um, there are wonderful white papers out of Facebook showing things like the error rates of various kinds and what weeks. And the error rates over Christmas drop to zero. <laughs> they don't just go down, they go to zero. And they stay there. And the reason for that is that lots of people are off on Christmas, so they stop deploying new features. Two weeks yeah. every year. And those two weeks, miraculously, the error rates drop to zero. <laughs> If you could just make all yep. of the developers go away, you could have error rates that hovered at just about zero. And you know who's never going to tell you that? Developers. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, to be fair, developers do say that the best code and the fastest code is no code. And that's and, kind of the same thing. And the difference is in whether you mean it. <laughs> if you tell an ops person the best code is no code, and you can convince them you mean it, they're going to do the obvious thing and delete everything. <laughs> Why? I could actually because believe they, that as well. They understand bone deep 
that if the best thing in terms of error rates can be done, and that means they can stop getting paged, do it. Don't wait. Especially during evenings and weekends, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the pager's not pleasant during the day, but the pager, the pager knows no time zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, I've, I've got to say, working with ops people is is one of the most mind-opening experiences I've had that way. It makes me want to work with different teams. You know, like, I'm really curious what working as a DBA on a team of DBAs is like. Somebody must do that somewhere. There must be places DBAs gather and work with other DBAs. Uh, but I've only worked in places where, at best, we had one DBA, and zero was a much more standard number. I think that's uh, m- much larger companies, I think. Maybe even in that case, they probably have a group of DVAs, but one of them goes off onto a project on their own. So I don't know, maybe. Yeah. that's. I worked at one place where we had shared embedded DBAs, like a team had a sort of a, a timeshare on a DBA, and the same DBA would work on a couple of teams, but you got like a third mm-hmm. of Larry the DBA's time on, on your team, which actually they did the same thing with ops people. Like you got like, a, you got like a half an SRE for your team, so one SRE would go back and forth between your team and another team. Uh, which, fair enough, most teams don't need a whole SRE, plus we didn't have nearly enough of them. <laughs> yeah, we had a similar thing at our old place. I, I don't have that now because it's basically just me working on my little project, but in my in my old place, um, we sort of, we had teams per project that were just developers, and then we would sort of go and commandeer a, a DevOps guy or, or a designer to work on a feature and things like that. So it was kind of just ad hoc, if you can grab one, grab one sort of thing. I like the phrase commander a DevOps guy because I, I have a little <laughs> image of you in a, in a pirate hat with a scimitar riding on his shoulders. That's exactly how it was as well. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So um, of what you studied in university, there was presumably some of it that was pretty completely useless and some of it that was maybe you didn't like it at the time but it was useful in retrospect and there was probably some of it that you found useful long term can you think of anything in in one of those categories um honestly no not really because i've because i've not used much from my university days like i said the first thing that came to my mind was the kiss principle which i try and use all the time um another one was it was actually something Jason Sweat tweeted about the other day, which was um, writing pseudocode, so writing code in English. Yep. Um, and I do that all the time as well. Um, but other than that, I kind of just saw uni as um, sort of opening the door into my career. Because mm. I, I do feel like where I am now, I could have got to myself without going to university. But I think doing the university kind of opened that door for me rather than me having to kick it down. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing that I found at university, and I, I went to Carnegie Mellon, so uh, this is mm-hmm. one of many ways my, my experience may not be typical. Um, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. Lousy local mm-hmm. schools, lousy local everything, prison town, uh, people who were... Uh, academically or intellectually inclined tended to leave since did way before I was mention, born there. Did you mention this was in the middle of Austin? Uh, Texas. 
Texas. Texas. Uh, yeah, Aust- uh, yeah. Uh, Austin is is the capital of Texas, but I, I was not yeah. particularly near it. Um, no, Austin is a, a, a relatively ordinary city in most ways, other than being surrounded by Texas. Uh, <laughs> whereas the the rest of Texas, not uh, not not so much. Uh, but it was yes, this was in in Texas. Um, and uh, the thing about that with there having been, you know, any, anyone who I might have found interesting to talk to having fled long before I was born, uh, <laughs> uh, is I, I, I got to be um, one of the smartest people I'd ever met for a long time. Uh, okay. I, it's not good for people. It's especially not good for young people to be the smartest person they've ever met for a long time. Because it turns <laughs> out you're not going to be as brilliant as you think you are. You're just not going to have any competition. True, uh, true. I was, I was not. This... I mean, I was bright. I think the same goes for working in jobs as well. Like, if you stay on the same team for long enough, like, eventually you think you know everything, but there's always someone who can come in and show you how to do things better. So I think just being open to that kind of change is good. Well, and the nice thing about Carnegie Mellon is I got there, and I was still, you know, decently bright. But I was used to being by far the smartest person anywhere nearby, and I was not that Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, particularly after having been lazy as long as I was, because there was nobody around pushing me, I was not that. I, uh, I suddenly decided I needed to study a lot harder once I met those folks. Fair enough. Um, you've mentioned that you're older before. Has anyone asked you how old you actually are? Uh, I don't know that anybody has on the show, but I was born in 1976. Uh, at the mm-hmm. moment, I am 44. Um, yeah, you know, there's always the whole before your birthday, after your birthday in a given year. But yeah, I'm 44. Um, so yeah. yeah, graduated in 1998, got there a little bit early. Uh, I suppose okay. I, could, I could say I was on track to be a wunderkind, but then I got old. <laughs> <laughs> you always um, sort of came across in your other episodes like uh, sort of Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid. Like you're about 80 uh, odd, like back in my day so <laughs> well it's it's computer years it's like dog years but you multiply by a bigger number <laughs> fair enough yeah no i uh yeah i don't know i i suppose i suppose uh I, I'll, I'll tell you that for people who aren't in computers what i do there is really annoying because mm-hmm. like i'm 44 going to a 46 year old in a different industry where 46 is not old and me talking about how ridiculously ancient i am pisses them off <laughs> yeah and and for uh, them, you know reasonable yeah. i'm 30 and before i left my last job uh, we had an 18 year old join and i i just felt like i was walking around with a cane holding my back the whole time yep. so... <laughs> you know the the oldest i've ever felt and it's been a lot of years now was when there was one contract marketing guy and the two founders that were older than me and everybody else in the company was younger <laughs> I was 26. It's not that I was that old, but I felt like I was 90. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, that has been a while ago now. That was that was before Ruby. Okay. Did you have any um, moments where you've sort of questioned your career? Uh, I have. It's been a long time ago. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I I had a string of bad jobs. And some right. of the bad part of the bad jobs was me, and some of the bad part jobs was the jobs. And actually, that, that place I mentioned was definitely one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, we were both lousy, me and that job at the time. You know, I've, improved, <laughs> I've improved since then. It's possible the company has too. They at least changed names, mm-hmm. so who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, 
but I had a, a string of bad jobs early in my career. And that's mm-hmm. one of those things not everybody recovers from. Like it was, it helped that I had one good job. Like I worked for Palm from about 2000 to 2002 uh, and it was great. It went well. I was there with good coworkers. I enjoyed what I was doing. They liked what I was doing. You know, I was basically respected by the other folks there. And after that, there was a string of places that uh, I didn't like so much and they didn't like me so much. And I don't know, I, I, could, I could spin a little just so story about how it was educational and everybody should do that, but I don't know that I actually believe it. I think maybe people should avoid that if they possibly can. The hard part is just being able to avoid it if you haven't done it, because the usual way to find out how to avoid it is to know what to look for. Um, anyway, uh, so sorry, you asked if I, yeah, if I'd had a time, I questioned my career. Uh, and some of how I dealt with that was to remember why I'd liked it in the first place. And some of it was that I had started really okay. working really hard at work. And that was keeping me from doing programming in my spare time. What I was doing at work was too similar to what I did in my spare time. And so I wasn't doing much spare time programming. Um, That's true. But I kind of reached that stage myself. Um, so is there any ways you'd sort of identify when uh, things aren't going well and you should try something else then? Uh, at the job or in your spare time or either? Um, either, I guess. I was thinking at the job. but <laughs> yeah. Well, at the job, uh, the problem is early on you're not going to know. Like early in your career, yeah. you're just not going to know. Um, mm-hmm. In general, um, the main time to worry that you're screwing something up badly by leaving your job is if you're at a place that really likes you. And if you're at a place that really likes you, most of the time you don't want to leave, has been my experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't had very many of those, but most people haven't had very many of those. It turns out that it's only relatively rarely that you're going to be at a place where you get to do awesome stuff, they recognize you as doing awesome stuff, you know, and, and you're sort of you know, headed on that nice upward trajectory. And when that happens, mm-hmm. usually you don't want to go, and they don't want you to go. Um, so barring that, you're not going to do yourself a lot of harm leaving most jobs, because most jobs are most jobs. They're average. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not really that the job is good or bad. It's not that you can go talk to the people and find out if it's good or bad. It's whether you plus that job as a combination would be good or bad. And that could mm-hmm. change depending on where you are in a company, especially if it's big. You know, you're, you're rolling the dice every time. Google is overall a, a fairly good company, but I can tell you some people who are miserable at Google for very good reasons and some other people mm-hmm. who have been thrilled at Google in pretty much the same spot. Um, so yeah, how do you know so if that- it's going bad? Um, don't overrate what you've got now because chances are what you have now is kind of average. And that's okay. it, it, And if I'm, if I'm wrong, as I say that about your job, you'll already know it by the time I finish that sentence. If you're still wondering <laughs> by the end of the sentence, then I was right. Uh, I think uh, for me, it was kind of um, sort of feeling that purpose and actually being happy where I was working because there was definitely days where I would... I would go into work and I'd just be like, well, I'm just going into work. You know what I mean? There was no enthusiasm for doing it, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, and that's that not the end of the world. I mean, it, I, mm-hmm. I know we, we talk constantly about passion in this industry, but there's, there's nothing wrong or dishonorable about going into a job because you like getting paid. There's really not. Yeah. Uh, but understand if you're doing that, that that's what you're doing and why you're doing it and so on. Um, it mm-hmm. is okay to be kind of rationally checked out particularly because even rationally checked out in this industry tends to, tends to pay really well. 
you know, if really, you want to be really rational, well. they checked out and, and get, you know, bring home a ton of money. And, you know, you, you don't necessarily feel like you're utterly engaged or even that you've changed the world, but you feel like you got paid a pretty good amount. Like, great, go you. That is a, that is a perfectly <laughs> valid thing to do. Um, it turns out people who uh, work the counter at a hardware store didn't used to need to think they were changing the world. It was okay to work the counter at the hardware store because you got a paycheck at the end of the week. And that's mm -hmm. still okay. I, I felt like um, sometimes a lot of my job was sort of doing the same thing as well. Um, so like making a Rails app, even if you spin up a new one, a lot of it just boils down to uh, X model has many Y model. And that's kind of it. You know what I mean? A lot of it comes down to actually like fulfilling a customer's need rather than um, any special code treatment or anything like that. And you know there is a whole deeper game to that, but mm -hmm. you already probably have a pretty good idea whether that deeper game is for you. It's not for mm -hmm. everybody. A lot of people don't enjoy it. You probably already have a pretty good idea whether it's for you. You know, if you read Sandy Metz and you go, oh, oh, whoa, my mind is, my mind is opening up. This is, this is like the first three times I had psychedelics. Like, I've been doing this career entirely wrong. I am going out and redesigning a, a gigantic object hierarchy now. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, then, then, then it's for you. It's not that everybody, it's exactly like that. But, but you know, I, you meet people where it literally was like that. And that's their thing, you know, and they go out and they learn domain-driven design and they go out and they learn, you know, all, all the various things about how you do your object design. Um, and if that's you, great. Um, Perhaps, perhaps you found something that's, uh, you know, that, that's just fabulous for you forever. Um, but if you do a little bit of that and it's not your thing, then it probably isn't your thing. <laughs> I did have, okay. um, I had a bit of a stint where I would learn something new, like, like what you're suggesting from Sandy Metz. And then I would sort of go back through everything I've ever worked on and be like, right, I've got to redo it in this way. <laughs> yeah. well, when really I didn't need to touch it. Yeah. Well, and if you're doing it because it's fun, awesome. You know, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with going back and redoing things because you want to try it or it's fun or you, you enjoy the idea of improving your skills. If you're doing it because somebody said to do it and therefore you should just go retool it because somebody told you to, yeah, that's, that's probably not worth anybody's time. I guess that comes back to the feeling purpose in, in your job as well. So, Because yeah. I, I found it really hard to sort of, um, I, I guess, care about things that I just didn't see as worthwhile and i think that kind of got me in a bit of trouble sometimes <laughs> yeah well and purpose comes from a lot of different places one of the best things you can do is figure out where it comes from for you and stay out of mm -hmm. conflicts of interest if you are somebody where the uh the autist not artist autist uh you know th thrill thrilling idea of having the whole design in your head and rearranging it in different ways until you get the perfect architecture for this chunk of code i mean if that's you if that's what feels like meaning to you, great. Like, keep yourself in those situations. They absolutely exist. Um, you won't be paid as well as somebody where meaning comes from making a bunch of money or serving users specifically. Mm -hmm. uh, but those people are going to have a lot of other dissatisfaction in their lives as well that you can skip. Um, and they should avoid the conflict of interest of being stuck, you know, in, in your little perfect wonderland because they hate it. Uh, so yeah, if you can figure out what gives you meaning, absolutely go out and go out and grab it. Don't let go. <laughs> Fair enough. But as far as I can tell, the only way you find that out is to try a bunch of stuff and it turns out you hate a lot of it.
specifically. <laughs> That's because you're a terrible person. I'm I'm seeing through the lack of a of a camera here at the just the letters that form your name, and I have discerned about you that the answer is you're a terrible person and you hate most of it. So you're going to have to be careful. An ordinary and reasonable person would love everything. I didn't realize you didn't have a camera, by the way. <laughs> I know it's a bit late into it now. Oh, uh, well, I think maybe you haven't turned it on. Like, my, mine thinks my camera is on, and I can't, I can't see you, but that's okay. It turns out, oh, oh, the letter's broke. Hey, there you are. Hello. <laughs> no, actually, the whole reason I do this with video is that, uh, that I figure other people are probably more at their ease if they can see me, so. Yeah, fair enough. One of, the, yeah. one of the joys of me recording classes for Rebuilding Rails all the time is I can stand staring at a camera on a tripod and make eye contact and just, ah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> How have you uh, found uh, building your own product, like rebuilding Rails? Uh, well, like a lot of people who make products, let me just tell you, it's a terrible way to make money. Um, <laughs> it, just, it seems like a good thing to, you know, to put out there right at the beginning, right? It's, mm -hmm. It takes a while before you realize that the success stories you read are very much like lottery ticket holders' success stories. Um, it's not that they're in the majority. They're, in fact, in a small minority, but they only publish the winning ones, and so you tend to forget just mm -hmm. exactly how many non-winning ones there are. Um, with that said, I, I love the actual mechanics of that being my job. If I, could, if I could find a way to make this pay like a regular job, I would just be thrilled. Everything would be perfect. Uh, I love doing it. <laughs> Fair um, and obviously there are some pluses to being uh, seen as an authority in my field and so on. Uh, it turns out being oh. an authority is just like being a regular person, but slightly louder. <laughs> I actually heard that about um, people that do podcasts as well, like yourself. Um, someone just said uh, it was something along the lines of people who do podcasts are just regular people. If you want to have a chat with some of the big names in your industry, just ask them if they want to do like a 30 minute podcast or something. And 95% of them will say, yeah, sure, let's, let's see what we can do. <laughs> well, I've been slowly putting enough edited episodes onto my website that, uh, that I can claim to do a podcast with a straight face. And so it's probably time to talk to a couple okay. of uh, luminaries from the industry. That's all right. I can, I can definitely think of a few I want to talk to. Cool. All right. I've enjoyed your podcast as well. So I'm quite happy to be talking to you. I've, uh, I can't remember what the last one was. I think it was Jason Yesbeck was the last one I listened to. Okay. Um, yeah. And it's been good so far. Um, just applaud you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll try to keep up that quality. You know, I, I feel like I've gotten better at the actual interviews significantly over time. But uh, one of the things about me recording a whole bunch of interviews as a season uh, is it turns out mm -hmm. that the vast majority of what I've recorded, nobody has heard yet because I'm getting one season recorded and in the can and just the first few have come out. Um, so bad news as far as how long until this episode comes out, sadly. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Um, it's been like educational in other ways as well, like learning about the U.S. Uh, traffic light system and things like that. It's been, there have been a few some random information. Yeah, commented on how oh yeah, the U.S. and, and U.K. traffic lights are different, huh? And yeah, they totally are. I've I've been learning about. Is that it one true myself. that you can go through red lights if you turn right as well? Uh, in most places, most of the time, uh, you are allowed to turn right at a red light. There's conditions. Uh, there are particular jurisdictions that forbid it. The city of New York, of, of right. New York City, for example, is, is a no right on red city, but they're uncommon that way. 
Uh, I could believe there are no right on red states, but I couldn't name you one. I'm not sure they exist. But uh, okay. a lot of U.S. laws are conditional because there are 50 states and they all pass a kind of random assortment of laws. And then at the county and city level, sometimes you'll get other laws as well. But no right on red, generally it's fine, uh, whether you can make uh, a U-turn. So at a, at a junction rather than a roundabout, if you want to turn around mm -hmm. entirely and go back the way you came. Uh, state by state, that is either legal or illegal. Uh, I think it's probably more often illegal than legal, but it's a bit of a die roll. You know, there's, there's a lot of both. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no, traffic laws are weird everywhere, but certainly in the yeah. United States as well. Yeah. So, uh, so what do you do? as a freelance developer, to improve yourself and your, and your skills these days? You know, do you do any kind of formal study or practice? Do you read books? Do you read blog posts? What do you do? Uh, well, most of the time, I actually listen to podcasts at the moment. Um, to be honest, there is a lot more that I could do because, uh, like, there's definitely... I, I sort of learn better when I'm doing something, mm -hmm. like when I'm building something, but I also find it really hard to build something without a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> So it kind of makes it difficult to learn. Um, but I guess if learning's the purpose, I should just get on with it and do it, really. Um, uh, maybe. Yeah, again, you, you need to decide where you find meaning. And this is one of those things where, again, if that turns out not to be where you find meaning, then then, then mm -hmm. run with whatever works for you. And if it doesn't, then don't. Fair enough. So at the moment, mostly podcasts. Um, but there's definitely uh, certain articles and stuff as well. Like I quite like the Spotify blog. They always come out with um, some really interesting stuff. But that kind of goes back to, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, about sort of people solving problems the hard way. Because um, a lot of people, they sort of look up to like Facebook and in this case uh, Shopify to solve problems that, most people don't have uh, Shopify size problems and they just need to focus on their problems rather than... Uh, so the the last uh, Shopify article was... Um, uh, it was about de deconstructing their monolith. Mm. Um, where, like, how many companies could you name that have got a monolith the size of Shopify? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Not many. Not many at all. Well, at um, least in Ruby land. One of the things I love about yes. Ruby is they give the number of lines of everything, and uh, all of the mm -hmm. Rubyists sort of <gasps> step back and take it, you know, gasp and clutch their pearls at how enormous they are. And I'm thinking, you know, I was still in university when I was interviewing for a place that had a 10 million line C program, all compiled together mm -hmm. into one binary. That was just what they shipped. Um, I don't know that I've even heard of a 10 million line Ruby program existing anywhere ever. And it's not but that kind of goes back to the, um, the way of writing code, <laughs> like yeah. the whole the thing before with Java, where it was like public, 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 this thing in Ruby, it's just def name what it does. <laughs> that is part of it. The other thing I'll say yeah. is uh, if you work in a genuine systems language where you have to tell it exactly how to lay out the bits and most of what yeah. you are going to be doing is maybe not expressed in terms of bits, but it is at heart a bitwise operation, mm -hmm. you wind up just doing a lot more operations to get anything done. Yeah. Um, but that comes back to making things complicated as well because a lot of things in Ruby you can sort of 
you, you could focus on the business logic and make really simple apps and then all the complicated stuff like the performance stuff you can just pass to you or, or to Nate and just like, make Ruby faster, please. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it used to be just kind of assumed that, uh, of course, you were eventually going to have to rewrite that stuff in a, in a real language. And one of the great mm -hmm. joys that we've found as we keep, uh, keep at it is very often you just don't. It turns out not everything yeah. needs to be fast. It, uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, wow, I'm completely blanking on the, uh, on the, the standard uh, given number of transistors gets half the, gets to be uh, twice as cheap every 18 months. Moore's Law, Moore's Law. Um, it turns out that after we've already declared it dead, it's finally saving us properly. <laughs> yeah. You know about the whole Moore's Law is dead thing? Uh, roughly. Okay. Well, so, I mean, you know, early, early computers would keep effectively doubling in speed every 18 months at the same price, which is another way of saying transistors yeah. got to be, you know, half the price every 18 months. Uh, and so mm -hmm. for a while they would grow and grow and grow. And it turns out at some point we hit, uh, physical limits on just how fast we could, uh, we could make them basically because of electricity. If you didn't mind mm -hmm. your computer being first a space heater and then sort of a small sun, um, you could, you could just keep that, you know, that same thing going forever. You would just need extremely good air conditioning. Um, <laughs> but instead we were able to, uh, keep making them cheaper as long as we had a number of dies, which is why instead we're getting the number of cores are increasing from here on out. Uh, and it turns mm -hmm. out we suck at using more cores. We're just not collectively all that good at it. Uh, and so if we just double the number of cores every 18 months, we very quickly get to the point where we can't do anything new or interesting with that. I mean, we have, mm -hmm. if you look at graphics cards, which do have a use for that, it turns out they're doing that like you wouldn't believe. Um, but there's a reason we only use it for graphics. It turns out very few tasks are as parallelizable as, uh, as graphics. Uh, and so we've kind of declared Moore's Law dead because anything where we want a single set of straight line performance, uh, it doesn't matter how many cores you've got. You, you just get to pick one of them and assign it the job. And so the fact that you've got, you know, twice as many, then four times as many, then, you know, 1,028 times as many, well, you've picked one and you're using it. You don't care that you have, you know, over 1,000 others that you're ignoring. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. Wasn't that a basis of your Brighton Ruby talk as well? Like you said, you were talking about um, threads and workers and how... Yes. Um, if you had four times the number of threads, that doesn't necessarily mean you're four times faster. That is definitely related to what I said. I'll say Ruby has mm -hmm. a particularly unusual setup that way because Ruby threads are what are called green threads, which is to say there cannot be more than one of them running at once. Ruby does not mm -hmm. use raw OS threads, which means that if you have four, four uh, cores available, you cannot in general just take your four Ruby threads, assign one to each core and go on your merry way because uh, mm. Ruby has the, the GIL, or GV, uh, GIL or GVL, two different names for the same thing, but the single mm -hmm. lock so that only one thing can be running Ruby code at once. And so a lot of the Brighton Ruby talk would have been about how if you're not doing anything with a lot of IO, um, you're not giving your Ruby threads anything to do because they're green threads. Whereas, for instance, JRuby actually uh, has a completely different curve on that. Um, mm -hmm because JRuby uses OS-style threads, and they, they have a certain amount of trouble because they don't supply some of the same guarantees that CRuby does, but they also have much better performance on threading because they're, they're full-on OS-level threads instead of green threads. Cool. Yeah. Um, 
I, w- I would kind of like to, like I mentioned earlier, get sort of more involved in performance kind of stuff. I've actually set myself a goal, by the way, uh, for ha- uh, Hacktoberfest. I'm going to make a commit to Puma. That, that's a goal. I'm going to nice. do that. Um, nice. So you can hold me to that as well. Um, but I was kind of thinking how how would it be possible to make performance sort of more accessible to people? Ooh, uh, well, so I will answer this question, but I will answer this question as a fellow who started on the Apple II, who used DOS before I used Windows or any other GUI, really, um, mm-hmm. and who was used to computers and operating systems and so on when they were much simpler things. Because mm-hmm. when you have a lot less hardware to toss at that problem, you can just you, you just can't do things that are as complicated. Um, and so my experience is that it is much easier to learn the very low-level behavior of a system if that system is simpler, which can mean that it's easier if you're closer to the hardware. Have you by any chance ever heard of a game made by the same people who do World of Goo called Human Resource Machine? No. Human, human resource machine. Uh, on the left, there's a little conveyor belt, and a series of letters and/or numbers are going to come on. And you've got a little uh, a little person that runs back and forth on the screen, and you have a series of instructions mm-hmm. about what that little person can do. They can take an mm-hmm. item off the conveyor belt. They can uh, put it onto one of the marked squares on the carpet. They can pick up and compare it with one of the squares on the carpet. And what it is actually is a little processor emulator, which happens to have a person running back and forth during the execution of these instructions on the, you know, on the visible display. Um, But it's a good processor emulator. They do a very good job of allowing you to verify whether your program that you write out of instructions on the right side of the screen actually solves the challenge they, uh, they they gave. And they do a lot of, you know, quiet processor emulation behind the scenes while also doing the the stuff you can see. Um, The reason I bring this up is that a lot of performance is about understanding the low-level stuff, even if you're not directly and immediately dealing with it. And there is almost nothing that you would do on a modern computer because you need the result that will teach you that. That is not a thing that almost anyone needs to know day-to-day anymore. Mm-hmm. And that makes it hard to learn. Uh, and yeah, so then your, your question, you know, the, the next question becomes, do you learn the thing that is hard to learn because eventually it will let you do something you want to do even if it won't immediately. Most people find that pretty demoralizing, but you can. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you find some other way to learn it, but then what other way to learn it? And so you'll see people who start programming on, let's say, Arduinos or something like that, you know, uh, hardware that is much simpler and is more like the kind of stuff I learned on back in the day. You know, there were fewer alternatives to it when I did it, but it, that kind of thing exists. You can still do it. Um, and so that can be a way to get kind of those sensibilities and understand the basics of how to do it. Uh, or you can do something like Human Resource Machine. You can play it as a game. Uh, I don't know of a game that literally teaches you, let's say, Intel assembly language, but the thing they teach you is very much like an assembly language. It, mm-hmm. is, it is a little processor emulator, just not for a processor that I think has ever existed. You know, their instruction set is so simple it wouldn't be anything recent, and I don't think it ever existed, but it is the kind of thing that you see in old processors. Okay. The game sounds like uh, a more recent game where you run around cooking things. Uh, a uh, bit like that. Uh, one of the differences... Uh, I can't remember what it's called. 
oh, uh, overcooked. Like let's cook or something. Overcooked, that's it, yeah. Yeah, it's a game. little like that. Um, you definitely mm. do, well, you, you, you build list of instructions, but in this mm. case, the, the lists of instructions operate without you once they go. Like once you hit the play button, you may no longer further influence the behavior of the little person. They're just going to do the list of instructions you told them to. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a variation on it called Seven Billion Humans, which is a, a sequel game. And it's the same thing with parallel processors. It's the same thing with more little people, but they all follow the same instruction list. They just may be at a different location or picking up a different thing, or they may have a different object in their hands. Uh, but they're reading from the same list of instructions, and they're executing on the same play field, although not at the same place within it. Cool. Yeah. I might have to check that game out then. It's worth seeing a preview. I mean, you'll, you'll decide pretty quickly if it's aesthetically, if it's, uh, aesthetically for you. Uh, it's the same people who did World of Goo. So if you like sort of cutesy goth characters, um, it has an abundance of that, <laughs> which probably sounds either very good or very bad to you. Very good, actually. Very good. <laughs> I, I'm a fan. I like it a lot. You know, I play it with my kids. Um, and you, you can't remember almost any of the classes you did at the university. So let me, let me ask you this. Did you do any significant amount of computability type stuff? Sort of theory about what a computer is able to do? No, not really. No, I remember there was some sort of networking one. Um, there was a project management one. There was a programming one. That's kind of all I can remember. I also remember in the programming one, we... Um, we had to sort of build an app that had a few pages on it, and yeah. my app ended up being fairly useless. <laughs> it was it had an app where it was trying to calculate something. I don't know if it was like BMI based on weight and height and stuff, but then it had two other pages. One was just had an in, embedded video from YouTube, and the other was just a ball bouncing around the edge and hitting the, hitting the edge of the screen, and that was it. So, pretty useless. <laughs> well, and that's, I mean, a lot of university projects have that problem, right? When you're first learning to build yeah. something at all, uh, very often you don't build something amazing. Um, I, I don't know. We, one of the things I spent a lot of time on in university was graphics and rendering. And on the one hand, mm -hmm. for somebody where I was, when I was, I was pretty advanced. And on the other hand, um, Wow, looking back at it, no, it just wasn't all that good by not only by modern standards, but by a few years later standards. You know, once I had some idea what that actually involved. Um, Can't you say that about everything you've ever done after a month? <laughs> uh, yes, that, and that's how I feel sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, um, yes and no. I mean, um, I like and respect a lot of the work that we collectively, me included, did on Palm OS. Let's say. Mm -hmm. You remember the, the Palm Pilot back in the day, and we, we did some things mm -hmm. related to that. And I mean, I, I won't say everything we did was amazing. There are definitely some, some lousy things we did. But like overall, I feel pretty okay about that. I feel like that was a pretty cool. solid foundation, and we basically did good work. Whereas I look at a lot of what I was doing in graphics and rendering before I had the faintest idea how being an artist might work. And I realized I was just doing completely the wrong thing for completely the wrong reason. Now, I won't say I've never mm -hmm. had a job like that, but they weren't the good jobs, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, the, the worst is always when you look back and you realize that not only did you not do a good job, 
but it wouldn't have mattered how skilled you were because you were working on completely the wrong thing. And so you were doing yeah. an inadequate job, maybe, maybe because, you know, it, it, at least for me, maybe sometimes because my, my skills were inadequate. That is totally a thing that has happened to me. Um, but the, the bad ones are always the ones where it's deeper than that and it's the wrong problem. Fair enough. I think um, the, the biggest problems I've had, because I've not had that much experience working on loads of different problems, because like I said, I've worked on one problem since you, uh, one company since uni. Yeah. And I worked on a couple of different projects, but a lot of it came down to the biggest problems being that we rushed into solving the first problem. So we would sort of come up with a solution and get it done rather than coming up with a solution and actually thinking about it, maybe even writing it down, you know, getting, I don't know, UML diagrams or whatever, whatever they want to do and making sure it's all uh, like set in stone and agreed before actually moving forward. Um, and some of that comes down to like the whole agile approach and things like that, where it's just like, well, we can just do that for now and then we'll come back to it if it's a priority and things like that. But sometimes uh, the biggest problems are just rushing into the first problem is what yeah. I've found. They mm -hmm. definitely can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, I, I've worked at enough startups that I've gotten pretty used to sloppiness. And I, I think sloppiness mm -hmm. has never bothered me the way it bothers a lot of people. But I definitely more mean sometimes you discover you're building a kind of thing that was just wrongheaded from the get-go. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think of a really good example. Well, okay. So at Palm... And I, I know I just said a lot of the stuff we did at Palm was good, and a lot of it was. At Palm... <laughs> um, one of the things we had decided was that people sort of liked the idea of downloading apps, but mostly they weren't into that, that into apps. The important thing was to mm -hmm. have a, a good core set of apps that were already on the Palm when you purchased it that would do a good job. Uh, and there were a tiny number of power users that liked the idea of apps, but mostly it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and a lot of our interfaces reflected that. A lot of our interfaces mm -hmm. were based around the idea that people wouldn't have that many apps and the apps wouldn't be that big a deal and it wasn't a problem if they were a little slow. Um, and no amount of executing on that skillfully would have fixed the fact that we were basically wrong about what people wanted. Okay. We could have done so how would you have solved that? Uh, realizing that the problem was more that apps hadn't bloomed yet. Uh, mm -hmm. But, I mean, logistically, the way you fix that is you make sure that when you have apps that are in regular use, you cache enough of them on the phone directly in memory. Um, you make sure that apps are easy to find. You make sure that the interfaces to add apps are easy to find. Um, one of the, in retrospect, pretty brilliant things that iPhone did, and iPhone did a lot of brilliant things interface-wise. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, it, there's a reason nobody remembers the smartphones that came before the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but a, a brilliant thing that they did was to add an app store because mm -hmm. the idea that you browse around looking for apps turns out to be basically the right model. It's like shopping. And a lot of people have tried to do, oh, like browsing and shopping on the computer. And most of the early efforts were terrible. Most of the efforts. I feel like the app store is a bit of a touchy subject at the moment. Oh, it absolutely is. <laughs> and I'm not saying they've done everything right about it, but having it exist yeah. rather than not exist was a brilliant mm -hmm. solution to a problem we didn't understand we had. Mm -hmm. cool. um, you know, have, so when you say how would you fix it um, 
you would either have somebody as brilliant as Steve Jobs, or you would have That's one solution. really good market researchers, or you would mm -hmm. have somebody with a genuine problem coming in to tell you why, why they need that problem fixed. Uh, and that last one is hard because the way you handle those people is so difficult. We are, we are collectively yeah. so bad at it. Um, so if one person comes to say, I've got this problem, that, that kind of, in a way, is your customer research, isn't it? Um, but because it's one person, they've got like a specific problem. Um, and th this tends to happen a lot with client work where they've got their one specific problem and they're thinking, right, this will solve my problem, but then I'll sell it on to other people. And their problems are this one thing needs tweaking and then this one ne thing needs tweaking. And that's that's where a lot of the big problems come from. Um, but it's kind of hard to balance that when it's a client-led project because the client ultimately wants it for them. Um, yes. So it's kind of hard hearing other feedback saying, we want this and we're thinking, great, customers want X, but then the client doesn't want X. And you just, oh, it's a bit of a awkward situation to be in sometimes. Oh, everything about that situation is awkward. Absolutely. Because, <laughs> you know, in, in the end, you know, how do you generalize it? How do you, how do you figure out who needs what? How do you balance it between, you know, what they want in their case versus what people want in general? And how do you figure out where the lines are? Uh, the, the horrible mm -hmm. answer, the horrible and very simple answer is be right. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with it? You, you, you correctly guess what the generalizable bit is, and then you build specific bits on for the specific parts on top of it, and you get that line right. Um, well, how do you do that? Uh, we don't know. But the difference between okay. succeeding trial and failing and error, is basically. be right. <laughs> you, can, you can get yeah. there by trial and error. You can get there by picking exactly the right mm -hmm. spot. You can get there by hanging out in one spot. You can get there by being flexible. Um, but it turns out none of those techniques are enough by themselves. The only thing that's enough by itself is to be right. <laughs> And there's there's not a systematic way to be right. Uh, definitely not. I think it it becomes harder when you actually try to please everyone as well. Because um, I think in in software especially, well, maybe not just software, but it, it becomes easy to be like, oh, we could add this condition to satisfy these people and not these people. Um, but then you just get into this weird state where you're sort of managing two separate uh, unaligned scenarios, and it's just a bit awkward sometimes. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely a lot of, is. A lot of development is awkward. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, so much of development is about uh, how do we manage the fact that we're going to be wrong a lot, and that makes us bad at, yeah. solu at situations where the solution is to be right. I mean, how, how mm -hmm. do you manage a situation where you're wrong a lot, where you're graded entirely on whether you're right? Well, don't do mm -hmm. that. I mean, one way or another, don't do that. <laughs> find some other way to approach it. Find a way where not being right is okay, or find a way to to approach it and not be wrong. I mean, yeah. Well, the options are either do it a quicker way and maybe get it wrong and then try again, or yeah. spend more time getting it right. <laughs> and a lot of the times, uh, particularly client-led ones, like I've I've seen in-house ones where they're willing to spend the time to get it right or trial and error or whatever. But for client-led ones, they're always, okay, we're working on feature A, we want to get it right, and we want it yesterday. Yep. There's never, you know, you've got a week to figure this out, and then we'll start building it based on X assumption or whatever. Yeah. 
And, of course, the usual solution to that is learn how to communicate about how you're going to be wrong in a way that they can't really blame you for in retrospect. And uh, yeah. that exactly. does fix the having to be right. It, down here. it does. <laughs> yeah, true. We, we, said you, we said we were going to do this, and you signed your name underneath on the bottom. The fact that you had no idea yeah. what it meant or the fact that it wouldn't solve your problems is, in a legal sense, no longer our problem. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, I'm just looking at my notes here. All good. All good. Well, uh, related to that, so you know mm -hmm. you better than I know you. Um, Hopefully. I, I assume. I, I don't know you terribly yeah. well. If you're, uh, But you know, you, know, you know you better than I know you. Uh, and specifically on this topic of how you learned to do what you do and how it prepared you for your job, the education, the work, mm -hmm. how, they, how they line up. There's something that you're the exact right person to ask that I haven't asked yet. Mm -hmm. There's some question that you're the exact right person to ask it of. And because I don't know you as well as, as you know you, I haven't asked it yet. Mm -hmm. What's that question? Bloody hell. That is a heavy question. Um, that is a good one. The funny thing, the first thing that actually came to my mind was, should a pina colada have dark rum in it? And the answer to that is definitely no. Definitely no. <laughs> okay. Definitely no. That's a strong yeah. stand. It so is. Can you tell I, me I hear you're, you're a big fan of tiki drinks, is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the pina colada is one I'm practicing oh. with, because the actual mixture oh, is of the... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's a good way to learn to make frozen drinks, and a lot of tiki drinks are frozen drinks, and so you know, the pina colada is kind of an easy one to, to learn to make frozen drinks with, and then I can move on to the things where the, the balance of alcohols is harder. And you, know, once I've already and you got prefer the frozen that right. with dark rum? Uh, I prefer dark rums to light rums in general, mm -hmm. and so in general I tend to, but... See, I'm, I'm wondering if you're going to talk to me about flavor or color or something else as your reason why the definitive answer is no. Um, well, for me, it's mostly the creaminess. I, I like the creamy pina coladas rather than because I don't particularly like dark rums. So it could just be that I don't like dark rum. Okay. <laughs> so you find the, the but, sort of molassesy flavor doesn't doesn't work well with the creaminess. Doesn't leave it yeah, as creamy exactly. as you want. Um, because you know you can increase that... the amount of pineapple or uh, sorry, the amount of coconut. True. Part of that could have been to do with a holiday I had a few years ago. We went to Italy, um, and it was one of my first holidays with my partner, and I, I drank a lot of pina coladas that day, that that week, and um, they were all no dark rum pina coladas, and they were great. Okay. Um, I actually got um, like pineapple shaped glasses when I left my job from someone that I worked with. Brilliant. I use them all the time. <laughs> nice. Yeah, in California, I used to have the little the little tiki head mugs, but I haven't ordered a set mm -hmm. here in Scotland. I'll get there. It'll happen. <laughs> I, I feel like that question was supposed to be more technical, though. <laughs> uh, possibly. Possibly. Um, you know, I keep being reminded that a lot of the technical mm -hmm. questions turn out to be social or philosophical questions, and I don't see why they can't right. be other things, either. You know, I was... Uh, Fair the older I get, the more I think that looking specifically at technical stuff is kind of a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, here, I mean, this is sort of technical, but sort of not. Uh, one of those parallels that just smacked me in the face recently. Do you know the phrase centaur chess? It sounds familiar, but I don't think so, no. Okay. Centaur chess. I'm going to give you one. Yeah, uh, please do. Please do. So it turns out that you've got, you know, you've got AI chess 
solver, you know, chess players, mm -hmm. and you've got human chess players. And it turns out there's a mm -hmm. genre of AI-ish computerized chess program that is designed mm -hmm. to primarily be a chess evaluator. There, there are really common ones, which will do a little point system for evaluating how good particular moves are. But there are some much more complicated ones, some of which require a lot of work on the part of the person viewing it, some of which require that mm -hmm. person to basically do a lot of memorizing and a lot of figuring out. And so you can take okay. a lot of the things humans are good at, like evaluating what counts as a daring but basically good plausible move, and a lot of things computers are good at, which is doing a dumb calculation on a lot of things all at once. And you can make an AI-human hybrid chess player and a somewhat better than average AI with a somewhat better than average human beats the stuffings out of the best human or the best AI players, hmm. it turns out. That's really good. Um, which makes a certain amount of sense when you think of it. Uh, and it's basically that the human players who are incredible are still overconfident. They are incredible, but they, are, they, they think they are even more incredible than that. And you can beat them by mm -hmm. something that has sort of computers editing to, to figure out what bad positions are actually bad positions. A better than mediocre player with a computer for sanity checking can still often outpace that. Um, and of course, the uh, AI computer players who are very good are still limited in certain ways, and there are still certain failure modes. Uh, I immediately think of AI StarCraft players, where it's, it's a much more human-friendly game. There are certain strategies mm -hmm. it will tend to pick in StarCraft, and if you happen to know those are the strategies it prefers, you can, uh, you can get around the fact that it, can out, that it can beat you at clicking fast every day of the week. Mm -hmm. um, I love StarCraft, by the way. It's a fabulous game in a lot of ways. I mostly watch yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, Same nowadays. Yeah. I, I have small children. Anything I do has to be instantly pausable, and I have to be able to just rush off. And you know, So it turns out watching StarCraft is a lot more pausable than playing StarCraft. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, so Centaur Chess. Second thing. Um, so have you heard of Honeycomb.io? Honeycomb.io? Yes. Yes, yep. the, yeah, the operations tool, which does this beautiful thing where they send back far too much information, and they downsample it in order to make that possible, etc. They have a mode called Bubble Up mode, where what you do mm -hmm. is you pick a relatively uh, simple measurement like latency, something that can show you a problem potentially, um, but that is not by itself usually enough to tell you what's going on. And you can yeah. take a graph of, let's say, latency or, or something else, and you can circle a chunk of that graph, and Honeycomb will look at the parts of the graph mm -hmm. that you did circle and the parts of the graph that you didn't circle, and it will come up with a bunch of plausible looking answers to the question, how is this circled bit different? which is the kind of thing mm -hmm. computers are good at. Uh, early, early artificial intelligence was really good at that already because it turns out it's, it's a very statistical question. How is this bit different is not that hard to answer, especially if you can give six or eight different answers to that question and show them to a human because a human is very good at looking at those six or eight answers and figuring out which of them actually makes sense. And so that's a great example of something where the human doing the human part and the computer doing the computer part, you know, what counts as an interesting thing on a latency graph? Well, sometimes high latencies, sometimes a group of high latencies in a spike that are not near any other high latencies so that you get little vertical bars. That can be very interesting. Sometimes something else. You know, interesting is a very human sort of question mm -hmm. and computers are terrible at it. Humans are quite terrible at statistics on graphs and things though because you could, you could have the same graph um, so say you've got something plotted from like zero to a hundred yeah. and then you've got it going from 70 up and down to a hundred yes. near the top. And that's like, Oh, this is all really high. Yeah. But then if suddenly you just show like 60 to a hundred in the graph, then it's like, look at how wildly this is changing. 
when really it's exactly the same yeah. stat. And so humans can be manipulated yeah. in that way? They can. But, <laughs> uh, I would say that the argument for that goes, keep the graph as simple as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Humans are very manipulatable. Humans are also very good at learning specific conce- contexts. I mean, mm-hmm. for, all, for, for all of these things, whether it's centaur chess or whether it's honeycomb bubble up or something else, humans are really good at repeatedly visiting the same context and learning what it yeah. means, which is why well, if you are very used example, to it, Go ahead. Yeah, the example for that, um, I, re- I remember someone was talking about it when it came to like a performance review. So they were in front of their like managers, I suppose, and they were just like, look at how consistent our thing has been. And then someone else did exactly the same thing with a different graph that's just like, says exactly the same thing, but it looks so wildly different. And then one of them, it, it compared, like one of them got a certain raise and the other one didn't get a certain raise. So I guess it depends on the situation. Uh, it does. It does. And I mean, again, part of what you're talking about there is that you can mislead people. And part of the trick mm-hmm. is to not use the specific tricks that do that. You could make mm-hmm. an artificial intelligence that was designed to mislead people, uh, certainly. Um, and presumably you wouldn't build it into your operations tool. <laughs> one, one hopes. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, and so that's a lot of what I mean by the context is that a lot of does this very wildly is something that if humans are starting flat-footed and they have no idea what they're looking at, they're going to judge it by, of the space that has been presented to me, how much does it oscillate within that space? And once they've sat down to the same context six or eight times, they're going to be saying, compared to the last six or eight, five to seven times that I sat down and looked at this, how does this look? And so building that context turns out to be, as a rule, more powerful than does it oscillate within the space. Uh, has, mm-hmm. has been my experience. And so one of the great joys of ops tools is you can assume people are going to use them frequently. Yeah, but anyway, um, but no, I, uh, I so looking at sort of centaur chess and the bubble up thing, and within this, a short span of time, the other thing I saw from a completely different uh, thing was what's called spectral repair, which is a thing that audio engineers do, where they see a two D picture of you know the frequency based versus versus uh, time based uh, response of a sound, and. I don't know if you've done any significant amount of audio engineering, but if you've got two or three sounds that are mixed together, it turns to be fantastically difficult to tease them apart. Mm -hmm. Like, just really, really hard to tease them apart. Um, In theory, you can do it with certain kinds of sounds. Like, if you've got an exact frequency that stays there, sure, you can trim out that frequency, but almost nothing acts like that. If you've got a high voice and a low voice, and what you want is for AI to take apart the high voice from the low voice, that's ridiculously difficult, almost impossibly difficult. Um, the only ever experience with that is nothing along those lines. Have you heard of the game Music 2000? I have not. It, you basically get little samples of sound and you like put them on a music board thing. It's, it's nowhere near what you're talking about, but that's, <laughs> that's what came to my mind. Fair enough. Uh, but in the same way, it turns out spectral repair is a view that looks kind of shockingly like honeycomb bubble up in that it shows this you know, spectral thing. And you can see particular areas of it, particular sort of washes of color across it that turn out to be mm-hmm. a drifting but similar set of frequencies over time, which might be, for instance, me... Because I'm going to be in a similar frequency range, not always, but just for that couple of seconds. 
and it turns out that'll mm -hmm. make a little smear across the, uh, the the frequency response graph, several smears really across the frequency response graph, which a human being could isolate and say, oh, that's that guy humming, uh, particularly after listening through it a couple of times, whereas a computer yeah. is never going to figure that out. Modern AI is nowhere near. Like the kind of stuff you would see on like detective shows. Uh, a bit like that, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar sort of idea, yeah. Um, but it turns out it's used for real stuff. It turns out spectral mm -hmm. repair is one of those things where if you have a very expensive audio sample that you can't re-record for some reason, let's say it came off a news clip, and it turns out Kennedy's not going to be assassinated again. Even if you really want it restaged, even if you want to, you know, move the microphone, <laughs> they're not going to go through assassinating him again. <clears throat> some people have no consideration. You sound really disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, they could have done it right. They could have done it with so much better, like the camera angles, the microphones. This could have been, this could have been made to pop, you know? Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, sometimes you really cannot get a chunk of sound again. Sometimes you're stuck with what you've got. And sometimes you've got to get your very best audio engineers sitting and working on it. And it turns out that even the best audio engineers have pretty limited ability in that case, because people are not very good at picking apart a set of sounds that come from the real world into component parts. Uh, in the same way that if we capture a broad swath of data from something, figuring out exactly what all of it means is really hard. And there's a reason that we use simple statistical tricks like we think the line is going upwards or we think the line is going downwards. 20,000 samples, and we can tell you, eh, kind of upward or eh, kind of downward with a number to atta attached to it. You know, there's, there's a reason mm -hmm. we do it that way. Like, the math is hard. Um, but it turns out you can do a lot better with a human able to identify what the little smears mean in the spectral view and the ability to increase those or decrease those, tune them up, tune them down, cut them out, replace them, um, in a way that neither the computer nor the human can do alone. And so okay. I guess, I guess what, what, what I was getting at is, um, now the pina colada is different, but one of the things about the pina colada is there's a reason you say that kind of thing, and there's something you find valuable in it, which is why I was going to ask you about things like color versus flavor and creaminess, and because somebody mm -hmm. else was making the pina coladas, you can't tell me whether increasing the coconut would fix it, darn it. I may have to, you know, go back and, and test that for myself. Uh, <laughs> But don't be afraid to give a non-technical answer because uh, almost all of the things that are going to help us very much come from non-technical fields because we've already mined the technical fields pretty darn hard. Most of the good yeah, stuff I think, is um, there, but we, we've, we've got the obvious stuff. Yeah, when it comes to like technical solutions, like a lot of... Um, I, I don't want to say it's easy, but talking to a computer, it's like you can write a bit of business logic to do the thing but the actual hard part in computer science is communicating with people um and i think like those sort of soft skills are like anyone new coming into tech or anything like that should probably focus on those over uh any kind of like programming language specifics because even, even specifics like that can change from job to job as well um you know you might have like a certain um like someone might follow Sandy Met's book religiously and do it one way, but then you go to a completely other job that's, I don't know, never heard of Sandy Metz and does components in a different way or something like that. So that kind of stuff can change job to job, but all of them you have to talk to someone. <laughs> so the, the soft skills are probably more important than the um, harder technical skills, I guess. That's always been my take on it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cool. Well, let me ask you a question. Pretend this podcast mm -hmm. gets massively popular. 
people listen to yeah. you. They, they love what you've said. If this was a Twitter mm -hmm. thread, then it would be going viral and you'd be posting your SoundCloud. What's your SoundCloud? Which is Where obviously you... what's going to happen. Of course. <laughs> well, the, you know, the Twitter thread on this mm -hmm. will go viral immediately afterwards because this is just so good. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> what's, what's your SoundCloud? Where do you hope people go after this to find out more about you or more about something else? Where do you hope people go? Um, so the best place to find me is probably Twitter, Jaliso CSP. Um, but since, like yourself, um, not everyone knows how to spell that based on the words, <laughs> maybe it's better to go to uh, craigpetterson.co.uk. They kind of all link up. Uh, I kind of want to update my website, and maybe that will give me a reason to do it. Yeah. Um, but that's the best place to find me, probably. Cool. And it'll be in the show notes, of course. Cool. Thank you. Sounds great. Well, uh, this has been Noah Gibbs and Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits. I've been talking to Craig and having a great time doing it. Um, it's wonderful to talk to Craig and wonderful to talk to all you folks out there. Thanks for your time, Noah. It's good to talk to you. Likewise. Thank you.